You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 8th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB News covers lead contamination. And once again, later in the program, WFHB News covers lead contaminated ash reported by local residents after the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burn at a home on High Street. More coming up in your feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have coverage on all of the latest government meetings. That's coming up in your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Board meeting on November 4th, board member Isabel Piedmont-Smith asked about the landfill investments in German American Bank that she said were bleeding significantly. Executive Director at Monroe County Solid Waste Management District, Tom McGlasson, replied. It's not been performing well this year. Um, and I, in our discussions with uh, with the bank representatives earlier in the years, you know, a lot of that has to do just with the market conditions and um, fluctuations and the limitations of our investment opportunities, but we can certainly reach out to them again and, and kind of reassess the portfolio and see if there's changes that, uh, you know, that can be made to help improve the performance. Board member Cheryl Munson said it could be due to inflation. McGlasson said he would follow up with the bank. McGlasson shared that the Waste Management District used to have a prescription medication drop-off, However, they did not have the proper training to do so. Therefore, they only accept over-the-counter medication now. He shared locations where residents can drop off prescription medications instead. Well, for, I, for the information of, of, of the board and, and whoever is watching, um, for, for prescription medications, uh, the drop-off that I'm available of are the Sheriff's Department, uh, Bloomington Hospital, and the CVS pharmacy that's over by Best Buy that's open 24 hours, a third in the bypass, third in College Mall Road. Munson added that Monroe Hospital also collects prescription medication. Next, McGlasson presented two options to the board for the holiday schedule to ensure that all staff employees are getting adequate amounts of paid holiday hours. Board member Piedmont Smith pointed out that for 2021, Employees received one more day of paid holiday vacation. McGlasson explained that sometimes holidays fall on weekdays, but if there is a holiday on a weekend, then they won't have that holiday off, so the number of holidays allotted can fluctuate. McGlasson suggested that they table the official decision until the next board meeting on December 9th to ensure the most equitable schedule. On November 4th, the Ellettsville Plan Commission revisited resident Kevin Ferris's petition to rezone his property to C3 to support his storage business. The council had postponed a decision at the last meeting to ensure the petitioner could attend the meeting and could advocate for his case. 
Commissioner Don Calvert expressed concern that if this is rezoned now, the property could be sold to someone else in the future. Once it is zoned C3, then they couldn't stop alternative development that they do not approve of. Ferris assured the commission that he has no plans of selling the property, and after he is gone, his sons will own it. Committee President David Drake responded saying he did not think asking these what-if questions was an efficient use of time. Oh, okay. I mean, we can we can speculate till the cows come home about what could go in there, just as we could with anything else that is zoned as as C three. Um, our uh, planning director has recommended that it be C three, um, and I, I think, like the other Kevin said. I mean, everything he's done so far has been extremely well done. So I don't know that this is really the hill that we want to die on and all of a sudden start to to make uh, make things quite that specific for just a, a, a rezone. The plan commission voted unanimously to recommend the rezoning to the council. The next plan commission meeting will be held on December 2nd. On November 3rd at the Bloomington City Council meeting, the council heard from the Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development, John Zodi. He presented the HAND Department Housing Report. So some challenges with rental housing uh, right now. Uh, 60% of rental households in Monroe County are cost burdened, which means they spend um, more than 30% of their monthly income on housing. Um, we are the most uh, cost burdened uh, metro area in the state when it comes to rental housing. This is from Prosperity Indiana. Many of you may know that organization statewide, a wealth of information on housing. So if you ever need that information, we're glad to hook you up with them and, and uh, they can share their information they presented to uh, the County Affordable Housing Advisory Commission last month. And uh, we've gathered some of that information uh, from that and, and are sharing it with you tonight. And the eviction rate in Monroe County is um, about three per 100 households, which is lower than some surrounding counties, but still pretty average in the region. Um, and the third challenge, and there are obviously more challenges, but three to sort of talk about here, uh, a third one being the impacts of Senate Rule Act 148. That was the uh, piece of legislation that the governor signed into law earlier this year that put more regulations around the landlord-tenant relationship and what the city or government could or couldn't do to regulate that relationship. So when we talk about tenants' rights and responsibilities and things that we're able to do to interact with our landlords and tenants, um, that was that was pulled back by the General Assembly a little bit. So it makes our job a little more difficult, especially when it comes to communication. Zodi shared that there were 537 households in Monroe County that received rental assistance in 2021 as of November 1st. Bicycle and pedestrian Coordinator Mallory Rickbile gave a presentation on sidewalk equity improvements in Bloomington. Um, so I have a theory, and the theory is is that if you want to know the extent to which a community values inclusivity and accessibility in their transportation network, uh, you should simply look at the ground um, sidewalks or the network of sidewalks, um, they have the potential to connect a seemingly infinite number of people uh, to wherever they go or want to go um, at any time. Um, 
for a time period that could last generations. And, um, and so when a community invests in sidewalks, this transportation network, they're not just investing in concrete and right-of-way and design, they're investing in the agency of their residents to carry out the business of their lives, um, to explore the world with their senses, to connect with one another. Um, this is especially true for residents who have experienced systematic underinvestment or those needs who are not met through a traditional transportation approach. Rick Biles shared a spatial equity analysis that the Planning and Transportation Department completed, which revealed certain demographics were underprioritized. The spatial equity analysis, uh, we, did, we did a spatial equity analysis, which is a tool through uh, the Equity Justice Project. And uh, we put in 20 years of sidewalk funding, uh, sidewalk projects that have come through that spreadsheet. And we found that um, disproportionately um, their sidewalk projects were clustered in areas that were underrepresented by unemployed residents. And there was an overrepresentation of uh, senior residents. We then, um, to test our variable about the uh, request-based system, um, we put, we just chose a hundred locations from the demand data that I will soon show you in order to test how that fared in the spatial equity tool. And you will see that um, system, you see that this is now much more in favor of um, low income, extremely low income renters and cost burden households. The next city council meeting will be held on November 10th. In today's feature report, WFHB News covers lead-contaminated ash reported by local residents after the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burn at a home on High Street. We turn to News Director Kate Young for more. On Friday, the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burning of a home at 1213 South High Street as a training exercise. Matt Murphy, owner of Four Square Construction and local landlord, says he felt a burning in his throat as he smelled what he suspected was lead-based paint. Murphy then bought several lead paint test kits at Bloomington Paint. He says all of the tests came back positive for lead. I was just sitting in my home office trying to get some things done probably a little bit before eight and saw flames leaping into the air through my neighbor's trees and remembered that there was some talk of, I knew they were performing various uh, practice exercises for the fire department at that house at 1213 South High Street. And apparently there were the sort of usual and outdated methods of public notification nestled somewhere in the legal ad about this event. So I walked down with coffee in hand and thought, well, this will be interesting to watch. 
stupidly assuming that all I's had been dotted and T's crossed. And I, I know there had been some abatement work done there uh, previously to remove asbestos and they took off vinyl siding and they removed the asphalt shingles. So I, I think I sort of assumed that in tandem with all that other prep work that they would have tested for lead, but it would appear that they did not. Pretty quickly, I smelled once the fire dropped down into the body of the house and began to ignite and heat the painted wood siding, which is original to the house, uh, which was built in the 50, early 50s or 1950. I knew this smell just from a contractor and painting work that it, it, it smelled like lead paint. And I also noticed at that point that this there was this fallout of chips and ash and debris that was just drifting westward into our neighborhood towards Bryan Park. And I ran back home and uh, went to Bloomington Paint and was able to buy a, a 3M test kit from them, uh, several of them, and uh, tested the samples right then and, then and there and determined that they, in fact, did have lead in them. Murphy lives about 150 yards directly west of the burn site on the corner of Ruby Lane and Nancy Street. He says he noticed ash and debris from the burn in his garden. He also spoke with his neighbors who saw similar debris. Uh, we've all been in touch, and there, uh, especially those people right in the immediate vicinity of the fire who really got hit heavily by the debris and fallout, they're uh, quite concerned and upset and hoping for some direction and communication from the city of Bloomington. We did have a visit from the fire chief. He stopped by a few households on Saturday morning, and I know they've posted, they have a website where you can sign up, uh, request remediation work at your house, and so people have been signing up for that. But beyond that, we haven't had a whole lot of contact or communication or direction from the city. The city has since responded to the possible lead contamination. A Google form was organized for residents to request remediation in the area at no cost. Quote, local health officials recommend keeping kids and pets away from the ash until testing indicates if it is hazardous, says Fire Chief Jason Moore in a press release. City officials say the fire department will contract with ServPro, a company that specializes in biohazard cleanup. The cleanup process will consist of using a HEPA-filtered vacuum, which the city says experts consider the best way to conduct this kind of cleanup. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management, who approved the permits required for the training, will take ash samples to measure the extent of the contamination. Murphy called a representative from IDEM, a few city officials, and the mayor's office. He described what he heard back after contacting them. I did call the Indiana Department of Health and spoke with their lead specialist. I called IDEM and spoke with their sort of response person who then made an appearance later in the day on Friday, Scott Frosch. He was supposedly their emergency responder, but it, it was a, a pretty casual response. Uh, he strolled around with some plastic bags and picked up chips, and I didn't see much of him after that. So IDEM did indeed sign off in this, and they were the ones who suggested or requested the removal of the vinyl siding and some of the other materials. And I think they had to check for mercury and various, you know, fluorescent 
lights and switches that are common in older homes, but bizarrely did not have anybody check for lead paint. The home was built in 1951, wherein lead paint was commonly used for homes of that period. It wasn't until 1978 that federal regulations banned the use of lead paint in residential homes. Lead paint can have devastating impacts on the human body, according to Gabriel Filippelli, the executive director for the Environmental Resilience Institute and researcher at IUPUI. Well, uh, it's particularly dangerous for children. So these are children like zero to about six, five or six years old. And that's because uh, they absorb a lot of the lead that they're exposed to. Uh, adults don't absorb quite as much. And so not only do they absorb a lot of the lead, but their their neurological systems are developing. And lead is a neurotoxin. So um, it becomes particularly problematic. And so if children are lead poisoned when they're young, they have all kinds of learning uh, delays. They have behavioral issues, uh, lower IQ, documented lower IQ, um, uh, and a host of other behavioral and, and learning difficulties that dog them for the rest of their life. So it's a big issue, particularly for children. Filippelli spoke on the health implications from inhaling lead from ash and debris. If you inhale, a couple of things happen. You, you think that it would, it would, all that material would go straight into your lungs, but actually a significant amount of what we inhale gets trapped, fortunately, in our sinuses. But uh, that's where... Um, with the mucus, you tend to swallow the particulates, the fine particulates uh, that you are exposed to, and and then they enter your gastrointestinal system, and that's particularly troubling, uh, just because that's the uh, uh, that's where you can really extract, if you're a child, especially extract a ton of the lead uh, out of that material that you inhaled and absorb it into your bloodstream. If you a proportion of it, if it's just inhaled. Uh, and goes into the lungs, our lungs don't dissolve that much lead, but they also are an issue as well. So it's, it's kind of a concern all around. According to the World Health Organization, once lead enters the body, it is distributed to organs such as the brain, kidneys, liver, and the bones. At high levels of exposure, lead attacks the brain and central nervous system, causing coma, convulsions, and even death. Children who survive severe lead poisoning may be left with intellectual disability and behavioral disorders. Even at lower levels of contamination, lead can affect brain development in children. It's worth noting that there is no safe exposure when it comes to lead. The WHO outlines that as lead exposure increases, the range and severity of symptoms and effects also increase. Filippelli says that both chronic and acute exposure to lead can have negative consequences for humans. So if there's a teeny bit of lead near zero, that's marginally safe. And it, and it can be safer if you're an adult. But even adults can experience uh, neurological and physical issues with a lot of lead exposure. Uh, we documented that on at, uh, shooting ranges, for example, uh, where you know there's a lot of lead in shooting ranges indoor and outdoor just because of the not only the bullets themselves, but the uh, the primer behind the bullets is uh, is enriched in lead, and so uh, so so in that case, I mean, the, we usually distinguish between what's called acute exposure and chronic. So if you have an event, a lead release event, you tend to have 
you know, obviously acute exposure. Uh, and, and that can have, you know, a serious dramatic immediate effect. But even chronic exposure, so exposure to dust that's mildly lead contaminated, for example, over months at a time, that will also affect the same general result, which is that lead ends up in your, in your kid's blood, and then it ends up in the brain, and they have all those same neurological problems that I documented earlier. Matt Murphy sent a few of the paint chips off for testing to Filippelli. Murphy says he's hopeful for immediate results. He says that he and his neighbors are furious they may face contamination of lead near their homes. Well, I think we're all pretty uh, furious would be an accurate word. Um, and like I said uh, previously, I am hoping that by some stroke of luck, I drop these materials off at the lab and they test them and say, nothing to worry about, carry on. Um, but so far, the 3M lead test kits that we have used have indicated a, it's been a positive result for every single chip we've tested. Murphy says he hopes the incident leads to some sort of positive change in local policy so that this does not happen again in the future. Well, I, I hope some good comes of this uh, incident. I, I hope that whether it be local or state rules, regulations, and laws that govern these types of um, so-called controlled burns, uh, I hope perhaps they can be changed because it does not make any sense to burn a structure like this in a core residential neighborhood uh, and really anywhere if it's going to release toxins. Um, so there's, I know there's already some talk about discussing this with IDEM and perhaps state legislators um, you know, to keep this sort of thing from happening again. The abatement contractor who removed the asbestos told me that he's been called to um, at least a dozen house burnings uh, as house, house structures were being prepared for a practice burn in Monroe, in and around Monroe County, out near Ellettsville. So I think these things happen probably more often than we know, uh, and I think something needs to change. WFHB News reached out to the fire department, but were unable to reach them before broadcast. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Friday on WFHB Community Radio. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you find your podcasts. On October 2nd, two prisoners held at Independence County Jail in Batesville, Arkansas, are facing felony charges for a disturbance and escape attempt at the jail. According to White River Now News, a computer tablet was thrown on the floor and began to smoke, leading to an evacuation to the recreation yard while the smoke was cleared. Allegedly, another prisoner tried to escape the jail during the evacuation, but was not successful. Both the prisoner who threw the tablet and the one who tried to escape have now been charged with, quote, impairing the operation of a vital public facility and criminal mischief. 
On October 14th, five prisoners escaped from the Baton Rouge Juvenile Detention Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. According to incident reports, the detainees attacked guards and stole facility keys and then unlocked the cells of others that escaped. They exited through a door near a courtroom and then allegedly stole a car belonging to one of the guards. Officials said the detention center is understaffed and the facility is, quote, antiquated. All five prisoners have been recaptured, one who was at large for two weeks and arrested on Thursday, October 28th. According to the advocate, two other prisoners escaped from this juvenile facility in July of this year. They were recaptured a day later. On October 17th, a disturbance was reported at Long Creek Youth Development Center in South Portland, Maine. It was reported that the South Portland police were called to the facility for six hours because a group of prisoners detained in the juvenile facility had broken windows and torn apart classrooms and units. Several thousands of dollars of damages were reported. It is unclear what started the disturbance, and no injuries were reported. WMTV also reported that there were five other incidents in August and September this year at the same facility, causing more than $100,000 in property damage. On Tuesday, October 19th, prisoners at Monterey County Jail in Salinas, California, started a hunger strike to protest COVID-19 conditions and the death of Sergio Shaggy Gonzalez due to COVID-19. The hunger strike started shortly after an outbreak of the Delta variant in the jail in September and after the death of Gonzalez on September 24th. Officials have claimed that Gonzalez died by suicide, but prisoners inside say it was due to the virus. It is unclear how many were involved in the hunger strike, but groups such as Community Before Cops and the MILPA Collective have publicized the strikers' demands and have held solidarity demos outside the jail. The demands include updated medical guidelines on COVID-19, adequate sanitation supplies, better responses from medical staff, and providing blankets and thermals for elderly prisoners. The hunger strike ended on October 22nd, but protesters have continued to organize against the inhumane treatment. In March of last year, 63 prisoners in both the women's and men's section of the jail collectively refused meals in fear of catching COVID-19. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. And I'm Don Guerra. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB.
listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending New Volunteer Orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 